Well, it was a delight to see our church growing. Church, Amen. praise the Lord for what he's doing here. May he continue to work even now as we go to Luke chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. You'll find that on page 867 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I do invite you to turn to that passage. I look forward to uh, considering it with you this morning. While you're finding your way to Luke 8, I, I do want to wish you a happy anniversary. Um, so happy anniversary, Hamilton Baptist Church. It was one year ago that we started our study of the Gospel of Luke. So uh, <laughs> praise the Lord. We've already made it to chapter 9. And uh, isn't this wonderful? I, of course, know what you're thinking when I say things like that. Why are we going so fast, right? And uh, let's slow down and, and consider this. And... Uh, we'll have a great delight, probably a hundred sermons, I imagine, in the longest book in the New Testament. And the reason why we slowly work through books, at least why I'm convicted that that is a helpful way to teach God's Word, is that it gives us opportunities to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider His life, especially in the Gospel of Luke, that we lift Him up, that He might be worthy of your affection and your commitment and your devotion. So what we want to do as we gather on Sunday mornings is to look to Jesus. We want to leave here thinking, my Lord is worthy of my complete obedience and devotion. We might want to leave here thinking, when I live in light of the truth of who Christ is, I find my joy and my purpose. I like how Charles Spurgeon, my great preaching hero, put it. What is the Holy Ghost to do with our preaching if we do not make the Lord Jesus glorious, if we do not lift him up high, if we do not labor to make him king and kings and Lord of lords, we shall not have the Holy Spirit with us. Vain will be the rhetoric, music, architecture, and energy. If our own design be not to magnify the Lord Jesus, we shall work alone and work in vain. Amen. So this is why deliberately and, and sometimes slowly we work because we want to see Jesus in and, and in and out every week. Of course, it do, it's not going to stop when we get done with Luke, is it? You get to the end of Luke, and Luke tells us, uh, Jesus tells us that he is both the author and the subject of all Scripture. And so whatever Scripture we find, we want to exalt the Lord Jesus. And that's not in preaching. It's when you're teaching Sunday school, or in your community groups, or in your youth ministry, or the children's worship, we want to exalt Christ. And I, I, I want to bring that up because you've been serving in the church long enough, I think, to realize it is very easy to get full of activity and totally miss Jesus. Is that not the great danger of this season that's coming on us? That you fill your calendar with activity that's wonderful and heartwarming and etc., but we miss Jesus. And if we miss Jesus, all that we'll do, even... If, and no matter how wonderful, it's ultimately be vain. We want to seek after Christ and glorify Him and abide in Him and be changed by Him. And I hope He'll do that this morning as we consider Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Hear now the Word of God. Now about eight days after saying these things, He took with Him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as He was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Our Father, we're thankful for this time in which we can consider your word. We pray 
that through your spirit, even now, he would illuminate our heart and our eyes and our mind, that we might see Christ through his word, that we may behold him and be changed by him. For his glory and for our great and eternal gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Shekinah is the Hebrew word that we use to describe when God makes himself visibly glorious. It's the word Shekinah. Sometimes we read the Shekinah glory of God. Usually, God's manifestation of his Shekinah glory is in the form of a brilliant cloud. Sometimes described as a radiant cloud or a cloud of fire. And so you know when God led Israel out of Egypt, we're told that he led them by a cloud by day. And, and by night, that cloud, it was easy to see that the cloud was actually brilliant. It was on fire. It was shining light. And, and this was referred to as the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud that shined the greatness of God. And it was this cloud, of course, that kept the armies of Pharaoh at bay while the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. It was this cloud that led them into the wilderness. It was this, this cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai. It was the same cloud that, that entered the tabernacle when that was constructed. In fact, Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle whenever the Shekinah glory, this, this brilliant cloud of God's manifest glory would enter into it. And finally, under King Solomon, when the temple was constructed, we know that fire fell down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. And the glory of God came and filled that temple. And all of Israel saw his glory enter the temple and fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him proclaiming he is good his steadfast love endures forever sadly the people of God would begin to use the temple not to worship God but to glorify themselves and their devotion to God began to wane over the decades and then the centuries to the point where it seemed like they would worship anything and anyone except God and there came a day in the nation of Israel when, when seven, the 70 elders of Israel gathered in the temple, each in front of his own particular idol to offer sacrifice. The prophet Ezekiel tells us, And that day the very walls of the temple had been painted with all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. Well, evidently it's at that point that God had enough for this. We read on in this great prophet Ezekiel in chapter 10. He describes these four cherubim that have, have come from heaven and each with four faces and four wings. And above them sits a throne of sapphire. And they would come into the temple courts. And Ezekiel writes, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple, moving over the threshold of the temple door and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, they stopped at the entrance to the east gate, and the glory of God was above them. It's an amazing picture of these angels come bearing the throne of God, and we see this, this powerful picture of the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple, passing over the threshold door, and coming up and engulfing that throne upon which the cherubim carry. They then take the glory of God through the, the temple courts and they come to the, the east gate there at the, to exit the temple area. It's almost as if God pauses there for a moment to look back at his house, his temple, before he goes on and departs to heaven. For Ezekiel will tell us he followed these four cherubim and their wings beating in unison and above them the brilliance of God's Shekinah glory. And then off they went. The glory of God was gone. And I wonder if Israel is kind of like some, sometimes I, uh, we are. And we think God will always be with us no matter what we'll do. He'll always endure us. He'll always put up with us. Well, evidently God's patience had ended with his people and their love for the idols and the hardness of their hearts, their unwillingness to withdraw. And he left. The glory of God left the temple. And centuries passed. The temple was destroyed. Rebuilt and then rebuilt again, but it was always empty. The glory of God never returned until 600 years later. 
as we read in Luke chapter 2. In the middle of a night, in the trembling hands of a carpenter, wet with the blood of his birth, he holds a baby boy. And in that same region, Luke 2, verse 8, tells us there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch of their flock by night. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And note what Luke says, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The glory of God returned to, to the earth. In fact, these angels would go on and proclaim, you know, this great and wonderful message. Fear not, for, uh, for, I, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then they're joined by all the hosts of heaven. In verse 14, they begin to sing glory to God in the highest. That God's glory is higher than any other glory. It's higher than all the glory of the kings and the palaces and the nations and the angels and the demons and the languages and the countries and the political parties and the sports teams and the musicians and the soldiers and the thinkers and the leaders. His glory is the highest when it had returned in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. John would say, we have beheld the glory, referring to Jesus, of the one and only Son of God. And there that glory shone on that day of Christ's birth. But then, then it was gone. Once again, of course, Christ was there. But there was no spectacular manifestations of the Shekinah glory. Certainly his works were incredible as we've been considering. His words were challenging, calming the sea and defeating the nations and healing the sick and raising the dead. And as we saw earlier in Luke chapter 9, feeding the 5,000, which led to Peter echoing the angel's confession. You are the Christ of God, he said in Luke 9 and verse 20. And it's based upon that profession that Peter gave, you are the Christ of God, that Jesus takes Peter and John and James. And they, they go up to a mountain to pray, as you see in Luke 9 and verse 28 of our passage. Now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up to a mountain to pray. And so off they go to pray to God. Something big's about to happen, as you know, as we've, if you've been paying attention to our study of Luke, whenever Jesus is praying, something wonderful and incredible happens, and something incredible does happen, as we see in verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We have no other event like this in the life of Jesus. There's no other time where we see dead prophets coming back from heaven to continue their ministry. There's no other time in which we see Jesus revealed with such radiance and such clarity. I think, in fact, as we consider this story, and I've been considering it for a number of weeks, we should be incredibly thankful for it. It is so unique. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's this veil that hangs over this visible world. And for this one moment in life of Jesus, that veil, at least a corner of it, is lifted. And we're given glimpse of, of hidden but deeper truths. And I, I look forward to being able to consider those truths with you. Too. I, there's like 17 sermons in this passage, just to let you know. I'm real tempted to just preach them all to you. Um, this is a wonderful display of who Christ is. So let's consider, first of all, that we see the very basic level that Jesus radiates the glory of God. Literally, he radiates, he illuminates the glory of God. Verse 29 tells us, as we just saw, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And so Jesus is praying and as he's praying, he's, he, he's changed. He's, as, as we often call, transfigured. Luke says his face was altered, which doesn't sound good, does it? Um, but Matthew tells us what Luke means when Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. Right? He begins to radiate light. And not just his face, as Luke tells us, that his clothes became dazzling white. His dirty, grungy clothes are now dazzling. And it's not because he's washed them, but it is because the glory of God is radiating to such a degree, not just from his face, but from his entire body, that it's radiating out of his robes. Mark tells us that his clothes became glistening, very white, as if no bleach on earth could bleach them. Matthew tells us his clothes were white as light. Now, can you imagine being on top of a mountain 
happening with the backdrop of the dark evening sky. And there Jesus is ablaze with glory, shining like the sun. It must have been incredible as we see Jesus. He's not so much being transformed. right? He's not moving from one thing to another. This is who he is. And, and, and who, who he is is being revealed. It's been concealed all this time. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, restore unto me the glory I had with you before the world was created. He wants that glory back, and he's revealing it a bit here. In fact, this time of year, we'll, we'll most likely sing a song. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead sing. So there's a veil over Christ. And that veil is being pulled back. The, the curtain of his humility is lifted to disclose his glory so that they can see him for who he truly is. Now, I don't know if you, you're just even thinking about this story. reminds you of another story that happened uh, 1,500 years earlier, before this happened, way back in the days of Moses. Remember when Moses went up to a mountain to meet with God, and came down from that mountain with the law in his hand, and unbeknownst to him as he descended and encountered the people of Israel, his face shone like brilliant light. In fact, he, he didn't even know it. And, and Aaron and others were so terrified of him, they, be, they ran away from Moses because he comes down shining the glory of God. You see, Moses was up in, with, with the Lord, and he's now reflecting God's glory. Moses is like the moon. He returns from God's presence, shining with this reflected glory. But that's where the, the similarities end, don't they? You see, because Jesus isn't reflecting anything. If Moses is like the moon, Jesus is like the sun. The, the glory of God doesn't come down upon him. It's not reflected off of him. It's coming from within him. He doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Even as, as John came up and read for us Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. This is who Jesus is. He is the, the glory of God. He is God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. And we see him radiating this glory. In fact, this is what Jesus looks like now and what he will look like forevermore. You read the end of our book, uh, the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. The scripture tells us the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb so understand one day my brothers and sisters in Christ when you walk upon this new earth and enter this new city and live in this new creation at the center of all will be the throne of God and seated upon the throne of God will be Jesus the Christ and with his glory radiating outward illuminating all of the new creation that's who he is and so you probably do well when you think of Jesus to not think of all the time this humble, traveling peasant in Galilee, but rather a king in heaven, the king in heaven, exalted and glorified. This is who Christ is. He radiates the glory of God. Now, the question is, well, why is he showing them this? I mean, why do this? Why lift the veil? Well, you notice in verse 28 that Luke connects this event with a previous event. He says, now eight days after these sayings, Luke rarely does this. But eight days after these sayings, well, what sayings? The, the conversation between Jesus and Peter. Remember when Jesus asked Peter in Luke chapter 9, I think verse 19, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds in verse 20, you are the Christ of God. And it's after this time that he takes Peter and these two other apostles up to this mountain. You see, Luke wants to link these events. And of course, Peter gave the right answers we considered some time ago. Peter aced the theology exam, if you will. But evidently, that's not enough for Peter. He wants, God wants these truths to begin to impact Peter's life and the apostles' life, uh, John and James' life. It's not enough, in other words, for them to know intellectually. They have to begin to experience these truths. It has to impact them existentially, internally. It has to actually begin to bear fruit in their lives. You think, by the way, that when Peter, James, and John were on this mountain and saw the Lord Jesus transfigure like this, you think this might have impacted them? You think this might have stayed with them for a while? You think this might have been an anchor for them? You see, they, they will see their master's weakness, won't they, in his hour of great need, but only after first seeing, at least just for a moment, their master's glory. And I believe that must have had a profound impact on them. Just as truth impacts you when you begin to eternalize it. 
It's not enough for us to know truth intellectually. We need to know it experientially. It needs to have take root in our lives and begin to change us. Let me illustrate a, a way in which this could take place. Uh, pretend for a, a moment that you have a friend who doesn't wear his seatbelt. And he, you'd say, well, hey, buddy, you, you need to wear your seatbelt. Don't you know it's dangerous not to wear a seatbelt? And he says to you, yeah, yeah, I know. I know the danger. I just don't like it. It's not comfortable for me. I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. Well, a week later, after you have this conversation with a friend, your friend goes to the hospital to visit someone who was in a car accident. And they weren't wearing their seatbelt. And they went through the windshield. And he spent some time with that person. What's this individual going to do the next time he gets in a car? He's going to put his seatbelt on, isn't he? Now, it's not that he has gained truth. He always knew not wearing a seatbelt is dangerous. He always had that understanding. But now he's actually begun to experience that truth. Or someone might say, hey, there's a new restaurant open. It's the greatest food. It's the greatest service. The greatest ambience. And you say, okay, I believe you. I, I understand. I know that this is the place to go. You will believe the truth. But once you go down and sit there and eat the food and you say, wow, you begin to be experienced by the truth that you had. You're not gaining it. You're not changing your beliefs. You're just beginning to experience it. And this is what's going on in Peter's life. He believes that Jesus is the Christ, but now he's having this incredible experience where he can internalize the truth. Now, the reason I I think this is important to talk about is is that so often we as Christians, we live with these truths in our minds, but they don't impact the way we live and think and act. If I were to ask you a question, do you believe that you are accepted by God fully? If you're a Christian, you most likely say, yeah, I believe that. And if I were to say, well, do you believe that God loves you unconditionally? And that that God's favor rests upon you. You as a Christian would say, yeah, I believe that. And I I were to come and say, do you believe that God controls every aspect of your life to the point where he's working all things together for your good, even the difficult things? You would say, yes, I, I believe that. Well, if you believe that, the question I think then is raised is, why do you get anxious? Why do you worry? Why do people's criticism of you buffet you? Why do you try to position yourself to win the approval of other people? Why, why do you try to put yourself in the best light so that other people would, would think highly of you? I wonder if it's because the truths that you believe have not truly impacted your life. Have not in, you have not internalized them. Well, we know the truth, but do they strengthen us? Do the truths change us? Do they comfort us? Do they give us peace that passes all understanding? Evidently, one way for us to begin to internalize this truth is to look at Jesus. To turn our eyes upon Jesus. And and to gaze upon Him. Let the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Stop looking at our problems and begin to look at Christ as He radiates the glory of God. But that's not all he does. You see, Jesus secondly liberates the people of God. So as Jesus stands there radiating the light, he receives a couple visitors, as we see in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, I've I've been talking about this passage for a little while. I talked to the staff on Monday and then the elders on Thursday. We all consider this. Everybody keeps asking, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? I mean, did he have like a name tag that said, hello, my name is Moses on it? I mean, how do you, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Maybe he heard Jesus talking to them. Hey, Moses, did you hear what Elijah said? And, and, and there's a conversation. Maybe that's how they know. What I find the more interesting question is why Moses and Elijah? Right? Why not Isaiah and Jeremiah? Or, you know, why not Abraham and Daniel or Job or, and David? Why not, why not Gideon or Josiah or Ezekiel? Right? Well, why, why just Moses? Why and, and Elijah? Well, if you remember even what John was helping us understand from Deuteronomy 18, remember Moses came and Moses gave the people of Israel what? The law, right? In fact, we even named that covenant after him. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. And, and Moses very much stands for the law. Of course, Elijah was the greatest prophet of, of the Old Covenant. Right? Elijah raised the dead. Elijah stopped the rain for three and a half years. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Elijah didn't even die. He was taken to heaven, uh, passing by death. And so you have Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets. Now, if you want to summarize the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, what would you call it? You would call it the law and the prophets. 
So Matthew chapter 5, for instance, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Saying, I'm here to fulfill the entire Old Testament. I'm here to fulfill the entire Old Covenant. In fact, after the resurrection, in Luke 24, Jesus is having a Bible study with a couple of pilgrims on their way to Emmaus. And he points out, the Bible says, starting with Moses and going through the prophets, he showed them that all of Scripture testifies to him. All of the Old Testament has been given to us to prepare us for the Messiah. That's the whole point of the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrifice and the Passover and the temple and the Sabbath. All the law and the prophets or all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so, if you will, the representation of the law and the prophets that are there on the mountain with Jesus and know what they're doing. Verse 31. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Well, they're, see, they're not just simply standing there looking awesome. They've come to talk to Jesus. They've come to have a conversation with him. They've come to help Jesus get ready for his departure, which is to take place in Jerusalem. They've come to encourage him. In fact, we know this is not for the apostles. I'll show you in a moment. They're sleeping through this whole conversation. And so clearly they've come for the benefit of Christ to get him ready to go to Jerusalem. In fact, if we get to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we're going to see he begins his march to Jerusalem. So we're almost at that great turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And Moses and Elijah come to discuss with Jesus how the entire Old Testament has been pointing to the Messiah's death and his resurrection in Jerusalem. In fact, interestingly enough, that word there in verse 31, departure, is the Greek word exodus. So in other words, you have Moses on the mountain talking with Jesus about Jesus' exodus, the ultimate exodus. Right? Moses, of course, had an exodus. He, he liberated the people of God from their social and economic oppression. But Jesus is going to liberate the people of God through his death and resurrection. He's going to bring an exodus. He's going to redeem them, but not from oppression, but from sin and death itself, from the wrath of God. And Jesus has come to liberate the people of God. And this is what Moses and Elijah are talking to him about. His liberation, his exodus, his, his departure by which he will redeem us. Now it's interesting, isn't it? We shouldn't probably pass over that these, both these men are dead. Right? They've been dead for a long time. Moses, 1,500 years, died prior to this event. Elijah was taken to heaven 900 years prior to this event. And you know what, what's amazing is they, uh, I think, very helpful. They give us a glimpse of the life to come, don't they? And we just get a kind of a, sh- a, a quick picture of what life is like after the grave. And I just want to point out three truths for you. This is not the point of the passage, but it's so good. I think you need to hear it. Um, so we, what, what we see, first of all, and maybe I don't need to say this, but when you die, Christian, and then you go to heaven, you remain you. In other words, you don't get absorbed into a sea of nothingness. You don't, you don't lose yourself in the oneness with God. You remain you. When you see me in heaven, you walk up and you know what you're going to say to me? Hey, Stephen. And I'll say, hey, and I'll do your name. I'll be Stephen in heaven. Stephen Arthur Karn now, and I'll be Stephen Arthur Karn in heaven. And you'll be you in heaven. And my children will still be my children in heaven, my grandchildren and so forth. We remain ourselves. Now, we, we're the best. I'll be the best possible Stephen. I'll be a far better Stephen than stands before you right now. But I'll still be Stephen. And um, moreover, I'm not going to get any wings, or, nor are you. Okay? You're not going to become an angel, I'm sorry to say. In fact, I'm happy to say that. Because why in the world would you want to become an angel when only humans are actually created in the image of God? I pity the angels, right? I'm made in the likeness of God. Don't ever come up to my child and say, oh, what a little angel. No, my child's not an angel. He's a bearer of the likeness of God, right? And so we're going to remain humans, glorified, wonderful. In fact, you see that glory there. Uh, 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 But so we remain you. Secondly... You have relationships, right? Moses, Elijah, they're hanging out with Jesus. They're climbing mountains. They're having conversations, right? They're discussing truth with him, right? So you're going to be doing stuff, right? There's activity, relationships, conversations. And then lastly, verse 31, you see who appeared in glory. You'll be glorious. You'll you'll share in Jesus' glory. First John tells us uh, that when he comes, when we see him, we'll become like him. We're going to become glorious like Christ. And I don't know all what that means, 
but it's going to be incredible. And I, I love this. I, 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 just, I love this. In fact, I love the fact that Moses, you know where Moses is standing, by the way. Again, the total has nothing to do with the message, but he's, he, he's standing in the promised land. Remember when Moses couldn't go? This is the promised land. He made it, right? 1,500 years later, but he made it, right? right? So this, how is it possible? How can Moses, 1,500 years, come back from the dead and stand upon a mountain? Because Jesus liberates the people of God. He liberated Moses and Elijah and you and I when he pays for our sin as he dies upon the cross and is raised from the dead. This and this alone is our confidence. Friends, I tell you, every single one of us is born in a state of slavery to sin and self. We are in bondage. We need redemption. And Christ has come to redeem us. It is not, therefore, based upon my works, my goodness, my righteousness, my holiness that will earn me a place in heaven. It is simply based upon the finished work of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He has died, he's risen, and he has called me to bow my knee to him in faith, and he has washed away all my sins, and he has made me his younger brother, adopted me into the family of God, and and endowed me with his spirit, and it's all of his work. Is that your confidence? Please don't ever be deceived to think, I'm going to stand before God and say, I should get into heaven because I'm a good man. I should get into heaven because I love my wife and pay my taxes and drive the speed limit. That will fail. Because no one's a good man. Except Jesus. He's the only perfect man. The whole point that Christ has come to this earth is because we're not good. We need a Savior. We need to be saved. You can't save yourself. Christ has come to liberate the people of God. Do you know Christ? You don't work your way into knowing Christ. You bow your knee to Christ. As God and King and Savior and Lord saying, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you are the Son of God. And I surrender my life to you. Save me. And he will save you. Right now. He'll do it right now. If you would simply bow your knee in faith to Christ. He liberates the people of God. Thirdly, Jesus is not another prophet of God. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. So the picture is Jesus is praying and they they drift off to sleep. And by the way, if Jesus ever invites you to go praying up on the mountain, it's best to stay awake, right? It almost seems to me that if these apostles excel at anything, it is the incredible ability to fall asleep at incredibly important times. And so here they are, they're falling asleep. I love the fact that Luke put that in there, right? He's a historian. You don't make this up if you're creating a religion, by the way. The founders of our religion fell asleep while Jesus was being transfigured. He writes it because it happened. And so they fall asleep. Finally, they come awake, verse 32. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Could you imagine waking up to that? Right? Getting up from your nap and Jesus is radiating like the sun. And there's Moses and there's Elijah. And by the way, you just missed the entire conversation because they're leaving, verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, so they're on their way out. Peter evidently realizes he's, this opportunity has slipped away. And so he blurts the first thing that comes to his mind. As we see in verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I'm not sure what's going on here. In fact, I don't think many people know what's going on here. Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and they're all in glory. And his first thing out of his mouth is, let's go camping. I'll pitch some tents. We don't need a flashlight because you're glowing. And, we're, we'll, you know, this will be wonderful. And we'll just go camping up here. And we're up on a mountain. What else should he do? Many people suggest that Peter's saying we should celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. When the people of God would live in tents for a week to remember and to celebrate God's provision for them while they were wandering in the wilderness and living in tents. But what, if, he, if that's what he's celebrating, we still don't know why. I mean, why would he say, let's celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles? Well, why is this even coming to his mind? We don't know. And evidently, Peter didn't know either, because you look at the end of verse 33, it says, not knowing what he said. 
Right? I mean, you can almost put that, that verse after everything Peter says, right? Peter said this, not knowing what he said. Until he gets to Acts, you know, let's give Peter credit. He excels in Acts. He's limping along here for a moment, and, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and Jesus doesn't even bother to respond to him. Uh, God will respond to him. But before we look at the response, what, what's the implication of what Peter's saying? I mean, why make these three tents? And it seems to me what Peter is suggesting is, man, i got Moses here, and i got Elijah here, and I, I have Jesus here. I mean, this is the hall of fame. Look at these guys. They're all here. And, and the immediate response to this idea that they're all here comes from God. Look down in verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. In other words, he's just not another prophet that you put in a row. This is the one I've chosen. This is my son. He doesn't fit into your pantheon. He's not in your hall of fame. As one commentator put it, he's not another prophet trying to get near God. He is the God whom all other prophets are trying to get near. And I think this is incredibly important because our culture, kind of like Peter, wants to assemble this religious hall of fame. We'll put all the founders of the religion. We'll get Moses and we'll get Jesus and we'll get Muhammad and we'll get Buddha. And we'll just kind of, we'll just put them all together. I mean, isn't this great? Look at all these religious founders. It, 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 this is how we live. We just want to line them up all in a row. And the Bible tells us Jesus is not just another one you put in a row. He's not. It's my son. God said. In fact, turn over to Luke chapter 10. I want to show you what Jesus said. And we could go scores of different places to find Jesus saying something like this. This is just the closest to where we are in Luke 10 verse 18. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, I knew Satan before he went back. And, and I was there on the day when he rebelled. And I saw him fall, fall from, I mean, it was like a meteorite falling from heaven. It was a, it was a blaze, Jesus says. Now, who says things like that? Right? I mean, do you, who comes along and says, oh, yeah, by the way, I was there when the devil fell from heaven. No one does that except Jesus. And you understand if that's true, if Jesus, Luke 10, 18 is true, then Jesus is infinitely greater than any other religious founder or prophet or godly man. And if it's not true, then Jesus is far worse than any prophet or religious founder or godly man. He's either a lunatic, totally deceived, or he's a, a liar. But the one thing that can't be true is that he's just one of many. Right? There's no middle ground with Jesus. He destroys the middle ground. He's either infinitely greater or he's infinitely worse. But the one thing he cannot be is one more in a row. He has not let that option exist anymore. He can't be. And therefore you either have to utterly reject him as wicked or insane. Or you must build your life entirely around him. And I would suggest the latter. Building your life around Christ because it is Jesus alone that can protect us from the holiness and the presence of God as we consider fourthly. Jesus protects us from God's presence or the presence of God. Look back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. But what's this cloud? Well, it's none less than the Shekinah glory of God. The glory cloud. Matthew calls it, Matthew 17, his account, it was a bright cloud. It's the presence of the Father. In fact, you notice he comes down from heaven, evidently. Look in verse 35 again. The voice came out of where? The cloud. The other two times we see the Father speak in Jesus' life, he speaks from heaven. And his baptism and in response to a prayer that Jesus offers. But it's at this time that God doesn't send an angel or doesn't send a prophet or doesn't send Jesus. But he comes down from heaven himself in the midst of this Shekinah, Shekinah glory, this glory cloud. And he speaks from that cloud declaring who Jesus is. You notice the apostles' reaction there in verse 34. For they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Matthew, perhaps more uh, vividly, says they were terrified. Now, why are they terrified when this cloud comes upon them? Well, remember when the cloud descended on Sinai? 
Could you go up and touch the clown? The touch Sinai, get near the clown? No, you couldn't. You would die. A cattle couldn't even come, and a cow couldn't even come and touch touch the cloud. It would it would die. The cloud was lethal. Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle when the glory of God entered into it because the Shekinah glory will kill you. He is holy. We are not. You see, there is a gap between God and us. A chasm between the divine and humans. And every culture, except it seems to me the modern Western culture, understands this. Every culture you study history or just look around this world... Every culture, no matter how isolated, when they encounter or think about the divine, they create sacrifices, they create temples, they create priests, they create rituals in a way to bridge the gap between the, the divine and them. Right? It's only modern Western people who think getting close to God should be easy. And if it's not, then the problem is with God. Right? It's, only, it's only the modern Westerners who think, well, if trouble comes, I can just go and utter a 30-second prayer and, and God should run to my rescue. And if he's not helping me out, then where are you, God? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Right? We think if God exists, he ought to be accessible and easy and ready to help whenever we call upon him. But there's a problem that the Bible presents, and everybody, I think, knows internally if they spend time to look into their heart. Is there a gap between us and God? Because He is holy, and we are not. And now He comes down upon the mountain around Peter and James and John, and something amazing happens. They don't die. They live there in the presence of God. Remember Moses? He was up on that mountain, right? And he said, I want to see you. Can I see you, please? I want to see you in your brilliance and, and, and your beauty. And God said, you can't see me. Man cannot see me and live. And here they are with the revelation of Jesus and shrouded with the Shekinah glory of God. And they live. It's only because of Christ that they live. I think Tim Keller's right when he says the transfiguration shows us that Jesus is not only the God on the other side of the chasm... He is at the same time the bridge over the chasm. Right? Because God's there and there's no sacrifice, there's no temple, there's no priest, unless you count Jesus. He's the sacrifice and He's the temple and He's the priest. Right? And He gives you and, uh, and I what Moses can't and Elijah can't and no one else can. He allows us to come into the very presence of a holy God through His sacrifice for us. He protects us from God's presence, gives us a relationship with God, and, and we can come into His presence. Well, this is not the only thing we learn. One last thing as we end our time together. We see finally that Jesus speaks the Word of God. See, the cloud is God in His Shekinah glory is not content just to be there on the mountain. He has something to say. In verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Very similar to what God said, what God the Father said of God the Son and His baptism. He said, this is my Son. Matthew adds that he said, this is my beloved Son. The Father loves Jesus. He has delight in Jesus. Jesus in John 5.20 would say that the Father loves the Son. He takes pleasure in Jesus. The, the mystery of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God manifest in three persons in an eternal community of love for one another. This is my son. I love him. He's my chosen one. Peter, you confess that he's the Messiah. You're right, the Father as. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one to bring about redemption from sin. Therefore, you and I should do what? Listen to him. You have much to learn from him, Peter, James, John. You need to listen to him. And it's in this point, Luke's gospel, Luke, we mentioned Luke 9 is this hinged chapter where we begin to move away from the miraculous activity of Jesus into the instruction of Jesus. He has shown us in early Luke who he is by what he has done. And now in the middle of Luke, he'll show us how we are to follow him. And he'll begin to teach them about the way of discipleship. And therefore, they need to listen to Jesus. Do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to him when he says, I forgive you of all your sin? Do you listen to him when he says, I receive you? Or you? Do you listen to him when he says, listen, I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave your side. I will be with you always, even to the very end. Do you, do you listen to him when he says, I, I provide rest for your soul? You come to me 
If you're weary, if you're broken down, I will give you rest. Do you listen to him when he says, I'll be your satisfaction? Do you listen to him when he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Do you listen to him when he says, you need to, you need to live a, a life of obedience and purity? Do you listen to him when he says, you have to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you? Do you listen to him when he says, you have to forgive as you've been forgiven? Or do you listen to him when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? See, we need to listen to Jesus. And I think in our day more than perhaps ever. It seems to me in our day the church is more interested in giving you a spiritual experience that you can have so come on Sunday and get some emotional encounter with God and you get all filled up and you feel like you're going to charge out into the week and then by Wednesday you're all drained down and you need to come back for another boost, another encounter. And I'm not against spiritual encounters with Jesus. Evidently neither is God because Peter, James, and John are having one. But I find it particularly interesting that in the midst of this literal mountaintop experience, the instruction that they are given is not, hey, come back up here next week and we'll do it again. It is go and sit at his feet and listen to him. Consider what he says. Seek religious instruction. Reflect upon the word. Contemplate his teaching. We don't take time to contemplate anymore. To think. And get in small groups and discuss. This is what God says. Peter, stop talking and start listening. And a great miracle takes place. In verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found, and they kept silent. Right? Peter closed his mouth. And they went on, and they didn't tell anyone. They told no one in those days anything that they had seen. Jesus is alone. Moses and Elijah are gone. And, and there's work to do. We need to go down the mountain. There's things to do. We need to head off to Jerusalem. And they would keep these things to themselves, at least for a time. But Peter couldn't keep them to himself forever. And so as we end our time, I just want to briefly consider over in 2 Peter, Peter's account of what happened. We'll just spend a couple minutes here. And so 2 Peter, that's if you find the book of Revelation, you've gone too far, go towards the front of the Bible, skip a couple books and you'll find 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter actually writes of this event, and I think it's an extraordinary description of what took place. He says in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, oh, we didn't make this up. This is not coming out of our mind. I saw this. I was there. I saw his majesty. What's he talking about? Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was born uh, to him by the uh, voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, "I was there. I saw it. I heard what God said. I saw him radiate with glory. I saw Moses and Elijah. I was there. And I don't know if you're like like me. There's a temptation in me. Said, I wish I was there." Right? I want to shake hands with Moses and hang out with Elijah and see Jesus radiate and hear Father speak. If only I was there, man, my faith would be so much more certain. If I could see that, my faith would be so much more sure. Well, look what Peter says, verse 19. And we have something more sure. We have something more sure or more certain than Jesus radiating with glory. More sure than Moses and Elijah returning from the dead. More sure from the Father speaking. Well, what can be more sure than that experience? He says it's the prophetic word. It's the word of God. It's the scripture. The scripture is more sure, more certain, more helpful to us than even Jesus glowing in, in his radiating glory and Moses and Elijah and the Father speaking. I tell you, Hamilton Baptist Church, read your Bible. Consider what God has. It is more sure than going up to a mountain with Jesus. In fact, look what it will do. Read on in verse 19. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place. You want to see radiant glory? Read the Bible. 
It shines in this world of darkness and will do so, according to verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart until the return of Christ. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Uh, We didn't make this up. We didn't come up with this. But the Holy Spirit inspired us, verse 21, for no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and gives us the word and illuminates our mind that we can understand. You see, Peter says, I've been on the mountain. I've seen the glory. I'm an eyewitness to it. But you want to see God's glory? Truly, you want to be impacted by it. You want to see his majesty and his mercy, his grace and his glory. Then read the word. Consider it. Study it. Memorize it. This is my son. What does he say? Listen to him. How are you going to listen to Jesus? You have to read his word. This is where he speaks to you. This is the word we get from this glorious event in Christ. What an incredible encouragement this must have been. Clearly, it propelled Jesus. He now was going to, just a, a couple verses later, begin his journey on to Jerusalem after this event. It's interesting to me, friends, that when he gets to Jerusalem, when he goes to that cross, he's going to climb a mountain again, isn't he? There in Jerusalem, it'll be a different mountain. Though. On that mountain, he won't radiate the glory of God, but he'll be stripped naked. And on that mountain in Jerusalem, he's not surrounded by the shining and brilliant cloud of God. But instead is shrouded in darkness in the middle of the day. And it's on that mountain that he is not comforted by the counsel of friends. But rather is abandoned by those he loves. And it's on that mountain that his father does not speak kindly to him. But it is there instead he is forsaken by his God. All that you might come to. Also that you might be bought by him. Also that you might follow him. This is your Christ. This is your God. May we be faithful in following our King. Our Father, we're incredibly thankful as we even prepare our hearts to celebrate this Thanksgiving season. We are most thankful for Christ, our God, our Lord, our King, the one who has come to redeem us, that we might be his and his eternally. May we be won by him even more today. May we have increased desire to know him, to follow him, to find our delight in him. We do this good work through your word. And for my friends here who do not know Christ as their Savior, well, they may know of Christ and know a great deal about Him, but He is not their Lord. Will you help them even now by placing faith in their heart that they might bow their knee to King Jesus and receive Him as their Savior and Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we...